is Resonance 104.4 FM. And this is a special edition of Hooting Yard on the Air. Special edition in two senses. One is because it's a kind of snuffly, cold, coughing, generally sick kind of um, episode. So if my voice sounds a bit strange and I sound as if I can't breathe, that's because that's how it is. Um, And the other thing is that I have a special guest on this week's show, um, Max Deshaunay, wit, raconteur, and a man who knows beekeeping, um, like the back of his hand. Max will be with us um, in a while, but first I'd like to read you a thrilling yarn. I was invited to tour the sheds, so I wore a pair of gloves. Have you got that so far? Sheds, gloves. The snow was thick, so we were preceded by a snowplough, the engine of which ran on fuel of a certain uns- of uncertain origin. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel. Make a note. When I say that the origin or provenance of the fuel was uncertain, I mean that I did not know of it, not that it was unclear to those people who know their snowploughs and other vehicles. Of course they knew where their fuel came from. I didn't need to know. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel, snow ploughs, other vehicles. Are you beginning to see where this leads? As soon as we got inside the first shed on the tour, I removed my gloves and put them on a shelf above a gas heater. How they managed to pipe gas out here was something else I didn't know. We were meant to have a picnic in this first shed, but no one had remembered to bring the hamper. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel, snow ploughs, other vehicles, shelf, gas, picnic, hamper. Bursting with inhuman courage, I volunteered to return to the biddy house alone to fetch the hamper. Various half-hearted attempts were made to dissuade me, but I waved them aside with my now ungloved hands. It has to be said that my waves were theatrical, even melodramatic, but I enjoyed the sensation. I could feel my blood pumping through my veins. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel, snow ploughs, other vehicles, shelf, gas, picnic, hamper, biddy house, waves, blood. Stop me when you've cottoned on. I left my gloves on the shelf above the gas heater and went out into the snow. Without a compass, I strode off in what proved to be completely the wrong direction. Instead of reaching the biddy house where I would find the hamper and heave it onto my shoulder and take it back to shed number one for the picnic, I found myself lost, and not only lost, but encircled by wolves. The wolves each had a dusting of fresh snow on their backs, I took this to mean that they had been standing around for a while, waiting for me. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel, snow ploughs, other vehicles, shelf, gas, picnic, hamper, biddy house, waves, blood, compass, wolves. I counted 17 snow-covered wolves. They remained perfectly still, looking at me. Nursery rhymes are a godsend in such circumstances. At least that's been my experience. 
So I began with Ringer Ringer Roses and then did Little Jack Horner. Not a single wolf moved a muscle. It then dawned on me that they were all blind. Blind wolves in the snow, and me lost and without my gloves and ignorant of fuel sources, and further than ever from the picnic hamper. What a predicament! Or was it? You be the judge. Now, listen, just once more. Sheds, gloves, snow, fuel, snow ploughs, other vehicles, shelf, gas, picnic, hamper, biddy house, waves, blood, compass, wolves, roses, muscles, dawn, blind. All should now be clear, as clear as the sky was on that cold, bright morning in September, 40 miles north of Helsinki, the capital city of Finland, founded as long ago as 1550, as a rival to the Hanseatic city of Tallinn. I'm bound to forget this, so um, I better do it now at this point in the show. Are you a pod person? Um, If you are a pod person, Hooting Yard on the air is one of the shows um, that you can get, you can subscribe for for absolutely no fee to podcasts of. Go to www.resonance.com and click on podcasts. Or search for Hooting Yard on the iTunes Music Store. Um, And if you do that, the joys of the Hooting Yard podcast can come to your very own computer. Meanwhile, this is a piece called Pabster's Tack. Pabster's Tack, Pabster's Sludge, Pabster's, Pabster's, of him we sing. We sing his praises, it seems to me, for want of anything better to do. Pabster's tack sits on his great golden throne, belching out light, a blinding light as gorgeous as it is uncanny. And yet it is an impure light, that is certain, for with Pabster's tack comes Pabster's sludge. It is the latter who is the source of those scarcely perceptible low booming noises, grave and deep and sinister. When Pabstus, Pabstus, was installed on his throne, there was carnival and carousing. Fools danced around maypoles, and jesting roisterers roistered and doistered, as if tomorrow would never come. No one has ever been able to count the pies that were cooked that day. Many, many people drowned at the swimming gala at the old crumbling outdoor pool, and ravens were seen hovering in the sky. A post office person stuck pictures of Pabster's tack to his hat and was chased across the fields by happily screeching children. But was there a trace of desperation in their screeching? And tomorrow did come, of course, as everyone knew it had to. 
That was when the first rumbles were heard of Pabstus Sludge. To appease him, the throne was moved to a higher point on the hill, just above the coppice, where moles betrayed their presence in their usual mole-like way. A gang from the tavern headed thither armed with rifles, until Pabstus, Pabstus, made it known that moles were sacred and must never be harmed. Some say the men turned their rifles on themselves in terror. Terror, it is said, is the only proper response to Pabstus tack and to Pabstus sludge. Wrapped up tight in their cardigans, hanging tilly lamps from the rafters of their cabins, the braver villagers plot his overthrow. Turnips are chewed. Cigarillos dangle from the soot-blackened lips of the vanguard. Secret anthems, never written down, are mumbled rather than sung. Food poisoning has wiped out most of these souls since Pabstus, Pabstus, first emitted his light and his booms 17 years ago. The throne has been moved again, moved and reinforced. Now it is perched on a sort of concrete veranda by the edge of a lake in which only puffy and bloated fish may swim. Larval creatures are strewn on the shore, watched over by one of Pabstus Tack's lieutenants. The air is thick, clotted, far too hot for this region. With each faint boom from Pabster Sludge, the shoreline creatures twitch. It is never dark here, thanks to Pabster's tack. Between the lake and the coppice lies the village. A deranged tangle of overhead wiring stretches beyond the horizon, supported on high wooden poles which sway and creak in the constant wind. Nowadays, children are no longer taught to sing Pabstus tack, Pabstus sludge, Pabstus, Pabstus made the wind, Pabstus made it because we sinned. But they should be taught that. It's dangerous to forget. Because I'm a, um, a very sick man, as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm going to take a rest now, and I'm going to hand you over to Max Deshaunay, who's going to... Well, I don't know. What are you going to do, Max? Um, I'm going to read a little bit from... Uh, it's a, an English-French dictionary from 1876 that I brought along, which uh, I like, I like uh, dictionaries that try and tell you what you might need on your travels. And uh, probably one of the best ones I ever found was when I, when I bought a, a Japanese, it's a modern Japanese um, dictionary. And uh, f being for the modern traveller, published in about 1999, they thought that you would need a section called uh, Chatting Someone Up. So you, uh, you get past the bit where they say hello and thank you and what's your name. 
to suddenly they launch into yes you're very good looking and then they then they have a phrase which goes aitsu no koto mo arukarane um which uh, basically is we must be careful of aids which i, th- I think in a in a chat up line is is possibly extreme but they were they were certainly uh uh acting in in a fine tradition because if you read uh, richard and ketan's new english and french dialogues from 1876 the situations that they expect that you might run into in uh, in foreign climes are quite uh, quite amusing they have a section called of antipathy and aversion and the first phrase is just i do not like that man at which point you think well yeah fair enough but then they go into i find his air anything but prepossessing he inspires in me a certain disgust a sort of aversion his look is not prepossessing and then you get into there is something repulsive in his address <laughs> i cannot surmount my antipathy to him it is difficult for me to surmount the disgust with which he inspires me this goes on then for about another two pages which which uh uh the tiresome praetor is as good as a sleeping draft one gapes at the sight of him what an insupportable fellow shall we never get rid of him rid of him and has he sworn to tease us all day um Then of course there's the bits where you're supposed to be um just politely inquiring on the health of friends and family and if someone has just said oh yeah how's how's you know how's everything is the wife doing fine um you're supposed to come out with a phrase which goes yes my eldest sister had the whooping cough the youngest had the measles my eldest brother the smallpox and the youngest a miliary fever Frank, any idea what a miliary fever might possibly be? Um it could be a military fever with a T mm-hmm. missing. Could could be. I mean there is actually a, a very handy list of sicknesses and disease that you might I probably have most of them at well, the moment. Okay, well, let, let's do a checklist. See if you um uh a pain? Yeah. Headache? Yeah. Toothache? Yeah. Stomachache? Yeah. Sore throat? Yeah. Quin- <laughs> Quinzy. Absolutely. Okay. Sick headache? Yeah. Colic? Yep. Fever. That's me. Intermittent fever and the ague. Yes, last time I checked. Okay. Tertian ague? Yep. A cold fit. Mhm. Shivering? Yep. Hydrophobia? Absolutely. A cold? Yep. A cough? Yep. Hoarseness? Yes. Short breath? Yep. The jaundice? Yes. Okay. The falling sickness? Yes. A fainting fit? Yep. A swoon? Yep. The scurvy? Yep. Leprosy? Yes. The plague. Yes. The smallpox. Yes. The measles. Yes. Dizziness. Yep. Giddiness. Yep. The dropsy. Uh yes. A swelling. Yes. A sore. Yes. A boil. Yeah. <laughs> Take it as red that yeah, I okay, have all okay. of these. So, obviously going to France was was a relatively dangerous proposition um in those days. There there's there's phrases here that they read like poetry or the, the, if you if you string them together uh the way they appear on the page it goes am i not modest is she not pretty are we not mortal are you not careless are they not languishing was i not pale was he not sullen were we not opulent were you not peremptory were they not proud was i not punctual was he not punctilious were we not polite were you not reasonable were they not crotchety Shall I not be useful? Have you ever said shall I not be useful? Most about once a day. Yeah. Ne serais-je pas utile? Um was he not will he not be steady? Shall we not be wise? 
and will you not be quarrelsome? Were I not peremptory um, or crotchety, um, we'll hear from Max again later in the show, but I'd just like to read this to you. Lo, in that year of torrential rainfall and storm clouds, I set out from the city carrying with me naught but a few rags. I saw cows grazing. I heard horses whinnying. At the edges of farmyards I hid behind hedges. My appearance was not one to encourage some cherry-cheeked farmer's wife to invite me in for a dish of scrambled eggs. For days on end I ate nothing but berries or scraps of leftover cake from countryside wedding parties abandoned in a panic after visitations from extraterrestrial beings dressed up in glistening metallic space clothing and armed with laser guns. Everywhere I went I saw evidence of burned out barnyards and terrified geese. After roaming aimlessly for about three months, I came to a city by the sea. I sat on a milestone and gazed at the unfamiliar skyline. Some of the masts of ships docked in the harbour were taller than the buildings. I fed a handful of crumbs to the goose that had been accompanying me for the last few days and patted its eternally bobbing head. Let us march into that city and be bold, I announced to the goose, pointlessly, for it did not understand a word of human language, being a goose. Nevertheless, it followed me as I hoisted my bag of rags onto my back and strode towards the customs post on the edge of the city. The weather was still tempestuous. I cannot count the number of puddles I squelched through, nor how many squalls set that little goose a jitter. The customs post, when at last we lumbered up to it, was deserted, but for a man of great illness lying sprawled on a pallet, whose moans took only moments to irritate me. Indeed, the sound of human whining after months of solitude set my teeth on edge to such an extent that I bid the goose stifle him as best it could. The goose sat on the sick man's head while I rifled through the filing cabinets. It was at this precise moment that the press photographer bounded through the door and took snaps of the scene which will be familiar to you. Startled by camera flashes, the goose fled. I backed against the wall, ragged and, I must confess, wild-eyed. The sick man was transmogrified. 
Only now did I become aware of his police uniform, as he and the photographer exchanged a glance that conveyed some terrible significance. That is why I am writing to you from a prison cell. Thus far I have fed my interrogators a pack of lies, but I do not know how much longer I can hold out. Please, please, my darling, try as best you can to smuggle in a package of sellotape, soap, bleach, some pins, a map and a bale of plastic sheeting, so that I can make good my escape. This is probably not the best piece to read um, when, when, um, when one is a sick man, but I'm going to read it anyway. Anyway. Attaching clamps to the slats with quarter-inch gulliver bolts, I smeared the latticework with a decoction of binding agents and threaded the netting through the tin clips, allowing me to dislodge the hasp on the paddle in order to provide enough purchase on the metal flanges which were arranged in rotation beside the colour-coded pails, the white one being strapped to a clogged bracket, the red one spinning on the torque engine, the blue one held in place by rubber frets, and the black one chiming against the aluminium knob on the wicket, which had been fastened to the anchorage unit by a system of winches controlled by a clay handle on the bowl, against which pellets were fired at prearranged intervals by the steam gun just below the fourth set of nozzles, cleverly positioned at such a distance from the first three sets to provide a constant stream of gases to pass over the tarpaulin in which punctures had been made to allow ease of passage for the andiron tubes carrying ball bearings to the spandrel and thus onto the rotating wooden platform upon which the greased hinges chafed against the pulleys sufficiently for the sparks to ignite sulphur bombs inside the Bakelite carriage without endangering the pads, bulbs and chocks on the hooter at the sounding of which the intricately wired snares would snap shut and entrap the oiled plasticine clumps, thus momentarily halting the recurrent biting movements of the cogs on the discus, throwing shards of todge into the motor around which I had placed canvas bags packed with candles in order to steady the persistent rattling of the ticker on the back of the iron sledge underneath the trolley, carrying the double battery-powered hammer which served to agitate the drum containing the four-inch blades detached from the rusted bowl of the compass held in place by the rocket on a monstrous titanium screw wedged against the plackets of the grit distributor I had earlier customised by locking its gut probes into position with no less than 26 separate multiple plugs, on each of which a scorched zinc disc swivelled in response to the magnetic properties of the special basin receiving the droplets of highly acidic gum arabic spilling out of the glass globe tethered to the scalding hot clasps of the larger plate by chains which ran parallel to the lengths of string tied at one end to the pirate's aureole and at the other to the shank of the casket nailed 
to the box of flags I had stolen from the same warehouse which provided the hooks for the plank balanced uneasily across the gap between the pinboard and the hodometer fitted with small beeswax parcels lashed to the crane from which dangled several springs and coils loaded with lead weights and enamelled cubes, the purpose of which became apparent when the gleaming cork was plunged into the canister of boiling duck water kept at constant temperature by hastily repaired piping fed by siphons and buttressed by giant prongs from the surfaces of which had been expunged precisely engraved instructions for the use of the inspirational choir funnels hidden inside the derrick next to the pumps on the tray of bauxite pebbles wrapped in hideous orange taffeta swaddling material as a sop to the git who provided the jars flakes and asbestos-free wing cranks are required for timing the bleaching operation on the plastic squirting mechanism moulded out of discarded beetle caps salvaged from a manufacturer of resins whose grotesque sponge hood had been incorporated into the workings of the shiny magnesium tripod atop which lurked a uranium pill squashed underneath a varnished Icelandic pan containing phosphorus hoops and a glamorous leather trumpet pitched towards a cobalt beaker lit up by the Mackenzie beam angled obliquely next to a yellow fustian canopy covering a massive trellis to which were glued an upended cone veiled by cotton wool wrapped around a toy horse with a propeller caked in mercury powering the fulcrum and bales on the fractured tub countersunk behind the crust of a feather on a stool with pins affixed to the leaching grill placed askew the, atop the big cracked bucket of winnowed sand. Incredible as it may seem, I had stitched the flap to the basket with insufficiently strong cord, and it now became dangerously loose. That is a long sentence, uh, so I need a rest now, so here's Max. Well, uh, I'll finish up with just a little bit from a, a section entitled uh, To Express Displeasure and Grief, uh, which begins with alas and aye and what pain, but then swiftly moves on to grief deprives me of all feeling, I am swallowed up in affliction, and my favourite, after so many misfortunes, it only remains for me to die. I mean, exactly how many, <laughs> how many times on a holiday have you, have you wished could, you could say that to whoever you uh, happen to be trying to communicate with? One of the other bits, uh, a section entitled Negatively and Interrogatively, which, which again reminds me of, it reads like a poem. And it reads like a poem that should be read in a, Norfolk, a strong Norfolk <laughs> accent, so I will. Has he no velvet? Have we no knives? Have they no powder? Had you no scissors? Had we not a looking glass? Had you no ribbons? Had they no chairs? Had you no reward? Had we no coaches? Had you no place? Had they no pension? Had you no spoons? Marvellous. Um, and uh, possibly to end the show, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but uh, this is a quotation from M.A. Chaplitska's book Shamanism in Siberia um, I haven't read the entire text but certain parts of it are superb like this bit The cam 
as if approaching the yata of Ehrlich and coming into his presence, bows, brings his drum up to his forehead and says, Murgu, Murgu. Then he declares whence and why he comes. Suddenly he shouts. This is meant to indicate that Ehrlich is angry that a mortal should dare to enter his yurta. The frightened Cam leaps backwards towards the door, but gathers fresh courage and again approaches Ehrlich's throne. After this performance has been gone through three times, Ehrlich speaks. Winged creatures cannot fly hither, beings with bones cannot come. How have you, ill-smelling black beetle, made your way to my abode? Have you ever said that to anyone, Max? Not in the last uh, fortnight, but, you know, on occasion. Yes. After dinner. Winged creatures cannot fly hither, beings with bones cannot come. How have you, ill-smelling black beetle, made your way to my abode? Well, it only remains for me to die, I'm afraid. (laughs) Exactly. Um... And um, that's all from Hooting Yard on the air for this week. Um, I do hope that I feel a bit better next week, but if I don't, um, you'll just have to put up with my voice sounding like this. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd like to thank Max very much for joining us. Thanks for asking me. And um, that's it, I'm afraid. Um, Bye.